Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode and Happy New Year. It's 2024. We took a little break over the holidays. It's been a couple of weeks since you've heard from me. So I hope you guys had a great holiday season and welcome back to talking about true crime and really just all kinds of interesting topics that revolve around healthcare, nursing, and just healthcare in general. I want to say, first of all, the story that we're going to be doing on this show today is very extensive. And I do not think that one episode is going to do it justice. So we are most likely going to be combining this with the next episode. I think we're going to probably chop this up because I want to give it the time and attention that it deserves. And we're going to really go into some very specific detail. But before we get into that, I need to introduce my guest host for this week, Roger. You guys know Roger. He is a critical transport nurse. He's been on the show a couple times before. He's going to be on the show a lot more now. We were just talking about this. He's just going to be as often as he wants to be on the show because it's always such a great conversation. But he's going to be really, really good for this episode because he is a critical transport nurse and he he's very, very closely tied to the paramedic community. Right, Roger? That's exactly right. Thank you, Tina, for having me back. It's always exciting to to be here and, and kind of discuss and bounce ideas off of each other when it comes to these topics. And this one is especially kind of near and dear. You know, I spent 38 years now as a paramedic before I became a nurse. And so this allowed me a, a good opportunity to kind of discuss things pre-hospital that nursing may not understand and to just provide a, a good bit of education on the nuances of things that happen in medicine outside of the four walls of the hospital. Yes, exactly. So this will definitely be a little bit of a, a special episode, this, this one and the next one. It's not going to be in our usual format. We're not going to do a good nurse story at the end because I feel like this is going to take up all the time. I'm telling you, my notes on this are very, very long. And it's because I just could not, I couldn't leave anything out. First of all, though, I will say this before we get into this story, I have to say I have people sending me presence. And so I really appreciate you guys doing this, but please put your name on it. I, I really, I let me know who you are, whoever is sending me presents or if it's multiple people or whatever, 
Thank you. Thank you so much. I am receiving them and they're so sweet. I, I, I've received several things. <laughs> they just randomly show up and it's all kinds of just... That's awesome. I don't know. And it's, it's really neat things. They're <laughs> neat things. Like, you know, I, I received a little jewelry box, like a little travel jewelry box with my initial... I've received a, a wine glass that says mastered it so because I just <laughs> I just finished my master's degree. So I'm like, and these are, <laughs> thank you. But these are just like random anonymous people sending me things. And I'm like, thank you. I just want to say thank you to you. So I, I want you to know I appreciate it. I feel so loved and appreciated and, and just it's very encouraging. So thank you guys. Well, you deserve it. <laughs> thank you, Roger. So we can get into talking about this story. And as you guys know from, from the title, we're going to be talking about Elijah McLean and what happened to him on August 24th in 2019. This is a ex- an extremely tragic story. And we are going to do our very best to be very respectful um, of him and his family. We want to use this as an opportunity to educate the people in healthcare, any, any, everyone, anyone, everybody, everybody. There's lots to be learned. Yes, yes. So much, so much to learn about this. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. I'm going to be reading the account from the Aurora Police Department that, that they put out initially because there's a couple different perspectives, but I want to read it uh, pretty much verbatim because I want you to really hear what they how they saw this whole thing go down. And I say that because throughout while I'm reading this, we are going to interject uh, some commentary here because it's obvious that there's some slanting going on here. It's it's a uh, definitely slanted in one particular direction. So having said that, I'm going to go ahead and get started. So on Saturday, August 24th in 2019, at 1032 p.m., the Aurora Police Department received a 911 call from someone in a residential area describing a suspicious black male wearing a ski mask, quote, acting weird by waving his arms around in the area of Billings Street and East Evergreen Street in the city of Aurora. Aurora police officer Nathan Woodyard was dispatched to the location and was first officer was the first officer to arrive. Officers Jason Rosenblatt and Randy Rodima assisted as cover officers. Officer Woodyard located a black male wearing a ski mask, brown coat, and black pants walking in the area of East Colfax Avenue and Billings Street. The male was later identified as Elijah Javon McLean. Officer Woodyard advised via radio that he located the mail and awaited his cover car prior to making contact. Officer Woodyard was driving his patrol car south on Billings Street and activated his emergency light, siren, spotlight, and stopped his patrol car parallel to where Mr. McLean walked. 
Officer Woodyard stepped out of his car and told Mr. McLean to stop at least three times. Mr. McLean appeared to ignore the commands and continued walking northbound on Billings Street. As Officer Woodyard approached Mr. McLean on foot, again telling him to stop, Mr. McLean said, I have a right to go where I'm going. I just wanted to remind everyone, this is the perspective of the police department. This was issued by the police department. So when I'm telling you this stuff, I'm literally reading their words. This is not, I'm not saying this is definitely what happened. Just, just reminding you of that. Officer Woodyard responded, I have a right to stop you because you're being suspicious. Officer Woodyard grabbed Mr. McLean's left arm. Mr. McLean immediately tightened up his arms and pulled them to his chest. Officer Rosenblatt grabbed Mr. McLean's right arm just as Officer Woodyard grabbed Mr. McLean's left arm. Officer Rodima arrived on the scene seconds later. Mr. McLean was clutching to his chest a plastic-style shopping bag with items in it. Officers did not know the contents of this bag. Officer Woodyard later told Detective Ngui that he was telling the male to calm down because he thought the male might have weapons on his person and wanted to conduct a pat-down search for weapons, given the circumstances. According to Officer Woodyard, this area of East Colfax Avenue was known for criminal activity, and the male was reported by a citizen to be acting suspicious while wearing a ski mask on a warm August night. Officer Woodyard described Mr. McLean as not relaxing or allowing himself to be searched. An officer can be heard on a body cam saying, stop tensing up, dude, stop tensing up. Mr. McLean then said, let me go. No, let me go. I am an introvert. Please respect my boundaries that I am speaking. One of the officers said, relax. And Mr. McLean responded, I am going home. An officer said, relax, or I'm going to have to change this situation. Mr. McLean said, leave me alone. Officer Rodima said, stop, sir. Can you please cooperate? We are going to talk to you. Mr. McLean responded, can you leave me alone? You guys started to arrest me, and I was stopping my music to listen. Now let me go. Officers can be heard saying, let's get him over to the grass. This appeared to escalate the situation. As Mr. McLean says, I intend to take my power back. I intend to be censored. I intend to be censored. As Mr. McLean is saying this, Officer Rodima said, he just grabbed your gun. Okay, so I want to stop there because there's a lot. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot to unpack in that little bit of what happened. I know Elijah was saying more than what is indicated in this account of what happened. I watched the body camera footage. It seems as though whoever wrote up this account deliberately put Elijah's responses in that would appear to make him sound delirious. They also excluded Elijah saying he couldn't breathe. I didn't, it's nowhere to be found in this whole document. So I don't know how you feel about that, Roger, but I, I, in, once you know what you know, and then you go back and read this, it seems like there's some stuff missing. I don't have I, it, body cams are are kind of new to the EMS arena. I know that there's agencies that are are starting to use them with their EMT and paramedics. I personally do not have any experience with them, and whenever you have that information and you're writing up your report, I don't know when those two kind of merge or, or they meet, or does anybody go back and review the video unless there's a problem that comes up? My assumption would be that the officers just write their report based upon their recollection of, of what happened. And 
nothing ever happens with the video footage unless something like this comes into play. Something somebody questions what went on, and then somebody in administration pulls the video, and then you match up these two, and you kind of see. So, you know, we know that the the mind is fallible. I mean, it's you you don't remember certain things. It would be nice if there was some way that you could immediately get a transcript from the camera and include that as to part of your your report and narrative so that you can kind of go, okay, I remembered this, but I didn't remember him saying that. And so I, you know, I don't know if that's even even possible to be able to review the 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 video footage and and do your report at the same time so that you're you're being factual and not just going based upon your remem- your your memory of the situation. Because in the heat of things I, I, I can perfectly understand not having all the nuances, but you know, there's got to be some some way to be able to match this information up so that the report is factual, not based upon a recollection of, of your memory. Well, the person that, that wrote this, they're from the police department, and they are the person that investigated this whole situation. They would have watched the, the three hours of body camera footage from all of the different perspectives. And so they absolutely heard him. It's so obvious when you're watching it. I watched, uh, now I will say, I did not watch all three hours. As you know, I watched some and then I would kind of fast forward while the, you know, the officers are like walking around or walking back to their car. Mm -hmm. Um, But I tried to watch as much as I could of when they were there with Elijah so that I could kind of hear what was going on. They're very limiting. I mean, I get, I mean, they have to be Mm -hmm. small. They have to be, I guess, pretty durable, but. You can't see a whole lot, and it, one one of them is right. on the ground. It's just kind of in your field yeah. of vision. Yeah, one of them fell, must have fallen off because it's literally on the ground. I just found that interesting that the part where he was saying he couldn't breathe that 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 wasn't in there at all. So to get back to this transcript or this report, in their interviews, the officers described that they attempted to move the male, and this is Elijah, you can say his name, we don't have to call him the male, away from the rocks and onto the grass in case a physical altercation caused them to go to the ground again. Their their words. Officer Woodyard and Officer Rosenblatt moved Mr. McLean onto the grass. Officers Woodyard and Rosenblatt heard Officer Rodima proclaim, he's going for your gun, but didn't know whose gun was being referenced. Officer Rodima described in his interview, how Mr. McLean reached for and grabbed the grip of Officer Rosenblatt's gun that he was holstered. All three officers then took Mr. McLean down to the ground as quickly as possible. Okay, so another interjection here, just to kind of interrupt this, because you can't tell by watching the body camera footage whether or not Elijah was actually reaching for a gun. It's not on any of the cameras. But after watching interviews I did watch several interviews with his family members, including the moment that the police reached out to his cousin. They were trying to to find family a family member, and she apparently is a healthcare worker and works in home health because she was talking about needing to get to her patients, her her client's house, and help them with some things in order before she could go to the hospital. If you listen to the conversation between the police representative and and his cousin, it is obvious that she was very shocked 
that this that her cousin that Elijah was in this situation. It didn't make any sense to her. And she even said, he is he's such a gentle person. He's this is not like him at all. Just didn't make any sense. And then as more information came out about him, and as you listen to his mother talk about him and listen to other people that knew him talk about him, you know, he played the violin for he would go to animal shelters and play the violin. And he was very eccentric, very creative, very he was a vegetarian, very sensitive soul. And as he said, introverted. I I have a hard time believing that he was really going for the gun. I, I just really do. Right. And and based upon, you know, what you were saying about the the video footage, uh, you're you're struggling and your hands are going place, you know, if he's trying to push or, or trying to struggle against them, you know, he's just reaching through the air grabbing. Who, you know, was there an intent behind, you know, did he, did he just, you know, reach in that direction? You know, was there assumption that he was going for the, for the gun or was he just grasping, trying to get away as he was saying, you know, just leave me alone. I'm just, I just want to go home. I mean, it doesn't sound like there was an intent that he was purposely like grabbing and trying to pull a gun away from the officer that it was it may have been. And, you know, all of this is we're we're going based upon what the accounts out there are and and the video footage that are available. But it certainly seems like now it's more that he was just flailing around and, you know, trying to trying to push himself away. And it wasn't intentional if he did reach, if they did see him reach in that direction. I don't, doesn't sound like it was intentional. It was just him trying to push back from, from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is no, there's no video footage of any of that happening whatsoever. You only hear the officer saying that. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything, but it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high dose CBD products that actually work. And now their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell a difference in this new strength and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. The officers described their fears and concerns upon hearing that Mr. McLean reached for the gun. Given the circumstances, Officer Rosenblatt attempted to use a carotid control hold on Mr. McLean, but was unsuccessful due to his position. The carotid control hold is a pressure control tactic that involves an officer placing his arm around the subject's neck, applying pressure around the subject's neck, restricting the flow of blood to the brain via the carotid arteries. Um, the intent of this hold is to gain control of a combated in- individual. 
Officer Woodyard was in a better position and effectively placed Mr. McLean into a carotid control hold. Um, Choke holds are not permitted by the police where you actually are going from the front, you know, where you're cricoid bone is in front of your airway. That's a chokehold. This is a, a carotid mo- maneuver is more of like literally just blocking off that carotid artery. It's just like shutting off blood flow to the brain and you're, you pass out. Your brain's like, uh, I need blood. This isn't it's like work. the old sleeper hole mm-hmm. they used to talk about with wrestling or whatever, yeah. you know, you're putting your arm around their neck and you're squeezing the front and it causes unconsciousness momentarily. And the carotid hold it, at the time, it was allowed. This was allowed at the, in the police department. Chokehold, no. Carotid hold, yes. This was allowed at the time. It is no longer. But at the time, it, this was something that they had in their arsenal of, you know, in their options as a resource to control a combative person that they were trying to get control of. So according to the officers, Mr. McLean briefly went unconscious and Officer Woodyard immediately released the hold. Officers Woodyard, Rosenblatt, and Rodima described Mr. McLean as actively resisting, fighting the officers' attempts to place him into handcuffs and resisting their control. Officers called for assistance of the Aurora Fire Department per departmental policy following application of the carotid control hold. Okay, so the Aurora Fire Rescue Station was dispatched to the location. Falk Ambulance also responded. Aurora Fire Rescue Lieutenant Peter Chachuniak, Engineer Firefighter Daniel De Jesus, Fire Medic Jeremy Cooper, and Firefighter Austin Bradley arrived on the scene. All members of Aurora Fire Rescue described Mr. McLean on the ground resisting officers. Fire Medic Cooper advised they were unable to gather any medical history or speak with Mr. McLean as he was combative and appeared to be showing signs of excited delirium by his appearance and his aggression. As a result, fire medic Cooper requested ketamine from Falk paramedic Ryan Walker in an attempt to sedate Mr. McLean. Fire medic Cooper said in his interview with Detective Ingui that ketamine is the drug to be administered per AFD protocol when someone is showing the signs of excited delirium, which includes hyperaggression, tachycardia, diaphoretic, or they're, that's, they're, they're sweating, and increased strength. Fire medic Cooper requested 500 milligrams of ketamine to administer to Mr. McLean, who he estimated to weigh approximately 100 kilograms or 200 pounds, which would actually is 91 kilograms. He actually weighed 143 pounds or 65 kilograms. Um, so this is this is interesting, Roger. I, I, th- what they said is it, he had on a bulky jacket and the fact that it was dark, that that is what contributed to their miscalculation of his weight. I don't know how you've, you've, you've been on. So that 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 is a hard thing. I mean, I, there's I'm, I'm horrible at guessing weight if I can't ask you you know, or that you're a infant or a baby and be able to ask the parents, you know, how much do they weigh? I'm horrible. And as probably most people are at guessing weights. And when you have weight-based medications to give, I mean, it's just really imperative. I know where places that I have worked, we have really broader ranges of weight when you're having to make a guesstimate. Our protocols are less than 100, 100 to 200 and above 200 pounds. So it, it just kind of makes it easy when you're we're trying to guess. 
when it comes, you know, and we, and we'll get into the weeds on on ketamine and its uses and and kind of the the safety and uh, aspects and 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 all surrounding um, that particular medication. But I, it's it, it it certainly is a it is a situation where based upon what they were seeing, you know, they guessed his his weight to be incorrect, and I don't know where there. I mean, there are we max out at four hundred milligrams. So their protocols were a little bit more liberal when it, it came to their, their dosing amount. I'm, I'm trying to remember back to when we first introduced ketamine in our organization's uh, pre-hospital. I don't ever remember ca- recalling it being that high. And that's an IM dose. That's, that's certainly not an IV dose. And we'll, we'll talk about dosing because ketamine is dose specific as to what you want it to accomplish, whether it's anesthetic uh, sedative or just completely disassociating a person, which somebody with delirium, you're wanting to completely disassociate them. So you're going to give them a higher dose, but it's going to be IM. So it's, it's more controlled uptake within the body. You're not giving that massive dose, which is where if you're giving it IV and you're giving it rapidly, that's kind of where you're going to run into a little bit of problems with respiratory depression, even though ketamine is not known to be a medication that can that, that causes respiratory dis- depression. It's one of the beauties of being able to give ketamine is that it does not knock out your respiratory drive like a narcotic does. So that's that's why it's one of the things that has fallen in, in into favor pre-hospital and, and in the emergency departments is that it does not knock out your drive to to breathe. Doesn't mean that it's completely problematic of 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 respiratory issues. That large single dose, being able to give it IM, and we'll get into I know we'll get into what the medical examiners say, and I've got a, a couple of of reports on the safety and efficacy of ketamine and and all the doses and and all of that, so we can we can talk more specific about that. But yeah, guessing weights is hard. I mean, it's I used to look, you know, I, I one of my particular partners that I worked with for a very long time, she was always spot on. She could have went to a circus and and guessed weights and been perfect. She would have never lost anything because I would always ask her how much they weigh because I I just I couldn't do it. I you know that. It's just not within my my mechanism to to be able to guess somebody's weight, so that's that's problematic. Well, one thing that it that comes to mind when when we're talking about the paramedic giving a, a pretty high dose of ketamine to um, his patient is in the hospital in the hospital setting. You have nurses who sometimes have medications that they're, you know, giving to PRN medications or as needed medications that they're giving to their patients for delirium or, you know, for maybe they're trying to hurt themselves or this happens in the hospital where a nurse is giving a, a medication to a patient to try to help sedate them because they're going to hurt themselves if they don't. But it's in very specific doses. And so say they're ordered Ativan or lorazepam, which is basically, if you guys don't know, it's sort of like Valium, it's a benzodiazepine. So say they're they're supposed to give 0.25 milligrams and the nurse has to draw up because it doesn't come in 0.25 milligrams doses. So the nurse has to draw up, say, 0.5 or, or they have to have a whole milligram vial or two milligram vial. Actually, most vials I've ever seen are two milligram. So then they have to draw that up and then they have to waste all of that. 
So one thing that I've heard nurses say and talk about quite a bit, especially on social media, is the, quote, nurse dose. And this is where nurses kind of wink, wink, oh, I'm going to waste this. And then the person who's witnessing it and putting their name or, you know, their password and fingerprint or whatever to say, yes, I watched them waste it. And yet they're going to let them go ahead and draw up more of it because they think that the 0.25 milligrams of Ativan was not enough to calm the patient down. And they, so they, they just in their own mind think they need more. The other nurse is like, yeah, I agree. And it's like, we're going to give a nurse, that's what a nurse dose is. It's when a nurse decides to give more, which is, it's not as easy to do on a controlled substance because you do have to have a witness. But if, if you, if you have people who are buddies that agree that this is something that's done and they do that for each other, then this is some, it's something that happens and it's all over social media. And I just want to, mm. you know, I want you guys to understand <laughs> this is not something that you should be doing ever. It, it, it is so incredibly dangerous. There is a reason. I know you guys think you know. I know you think you know what's best. That there is a reason for those limitations. And there's, there's so much wrong with that scenario. But let's just talk about the fact that you're going on social media and actually condoning this behavior. Bad idea. It's like what we talked about earlier. Every medication that you give comes with a risk. doesn't matter how. I mean, it can be dextrose. I mean, it comes with a risk. I mean, what if it infiltrates and it goes into the tissue? I mean, you, you're going to kill that, that tissue surrounding that IV site and they could lose their arm. So, I mean, something as, as simple as dextrose can cause somebody to lose their arm. So everything comes with a risk and you can't just arbitrarily go, you know, well, you know, It'll be okay this time because you never, every, every human being is different and you don't know their reaction and to a, to a medication that you're going to give. And especially if it's the first time they've been given it. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. Somebody can have the opposite reaction to, to a medication. I mean, we've yeah, seen that lots of absolutely times. can happen, especially in elderly people and people that are older. Yes, very much mm-hmm. so. And it's so just to kind of segue or just a, just a little bit in this this section i just wanted to talk about the fire department and the private ambulance service and and kind of why that why that is why they're set up like that everybody runs ems differently if you're a fire based service sometimes you transport sometimes the city contracts with a private ambulance service to con- to do the actual transport and so you have these agreements and contracts that you know, the fire department will go out and then the ambulance will show up. If you've ever watched the old Emergency 51 show from California from the 70s, that was a, a demonstration of a fire department response with paramedics and then the ambulance would show up afterwards and transport the the patient. In that situation, Roy and Johnny always jumped in the back of the ambulance and took care of the patient all the way to the hospital. In these situations, they would actually turn over care to the private ambulance service to continue. They generally work under the same protocols. They have either the same medical director or the medical directors may work at the same hospital. So they're all affiliated and they all understand what 
everybody's role is. But generally speaking, the fire department paramedics are going to be in charge of the scene until the patient gets in the back of the ambulance. And then the paramedic that is on the ambulance then becomes responsible for the patient care because care is handed off to them. It's it can be cumbersome because it just depends on your relationship with the fire department and the private ambulance services. Sometimes it's adversarial and it's not the best makeup, you know, where you've got the medics on scene going, I'm in control and I don't need you and I don't want your opinion. You know, it's obvious from this account. I mean, he ordered the paramedic from the private service to get him the medication and draw it up. There did not, in any account that I have read, appear to be any pushback from that paramedic whatsoever to say, sorry, I am not giving you that amount of ketamine to give to this person. Didn't even question. Yeah, didn't question. How do you know how much he weighs? Didn't even talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I look at this situation. I mean, it's almost a perfect storm for not being able to cross check. You know, we routinely, in fact, we are getting ready to go through several hours worth of training about, um, it has to do with our just culture training and, but cross checking our medications. And I do it routinely. I kind of, when, before I became a nurse, I was a little bit of a pushback on, on doing this. So I will say I, I was a bit guilty myself of not cross-checking medications as a, as a paramedic, especially if I'm with a basic EMT partner, because I'm like, what do they know about the medication that I'm giving them? And they don't know how to calculate the medication. It's not in their scope. So why am I going to run this past them and ask them, is it okay for me to give this medication when it's not in their scope? But after I went to nursing school and started looking at the nuances of just really administering medications and seeing it from my nursing eyes and seeing the problems even with our computerization and getting doses out of the omnicell or whatever the the computer cabinet that you have controlling your medications scanning it into the computer system you can still make errors i mean it's not it's it's not um, free of any any problems um, you still have to double check. Running it by someone else helps you see what it is too. And in the back of the ambulance, you don't have all that computerization. So you have to rely on somebody else, even if they're, that's not within their scope of practice. Me verbally saying it to them and running it through, I'm thinking about everything that I'm saying and I'm having to justify to them why I'm doing this. And so I may be able to catch my own mistake of going, okay, Here's the vial of fentanyl. It's 100 micrograms in two milliliters. I'm going to give 25 milligram or micrograms. So that is 0.25. That is a quarter of a cc. Here is my syringe. Here's my vial. It says fentanyl. That's the dosage. Here's my syringe. That's what I've drawn up. I mean, anybody can look at it and go, yes, you do have a vial of fentanyl. You do have it drawn up correctly. It probably would be better to have someone else who is at your your level to be able to understand it. But whatever you have to work with, you know, use whatever is at your at your disposal. But now in the environment that I'm in, you know, you have two advanced providers, one a paramedic and the other a nurse. So it is in both of your scopes. Um, so, you know, it's, it's great to be able to have my paramedic partner there to go, hey, here's the fentanyl. Here's what I've drawn up. My intention is to give 25 micrograms of fentanyl. Do you concur? And are does this patient need 
are you good with me giving 25 micrograms? Yeah. I mean, and I think you, know, you have the ability to be able to say, no, I'm not good with and that. And I think that that's you know, a lot, a lot of that has to do with culture. It has to do with, you know, if I, if I push back on this paramedic who's asking me to give him 500 milligrams of ketamine, they're going to look at me like, oh, who do you think you are? It, you know, it's that is a culture. Or the next time I'm out with this fire department, you know, I'm going to run into the cold shoulder or, you know, the, the you know, oh, they're stupid. They're just the private ambulance service paramedics, you know. It's a culture. You know, it's a culture. Just, and you, yeah, you have to very be. Very much so. And this is, I know it sounds really cheesy, but you do, you have to be part of the change of, to change culture like that. You have to push back. You have to be strong enough and, and courageous enough and brave enough to speak up when you know that something isn't right. And it's hard for me to believe that that many people in that area that there wasn't one person wasn't one person that didn't know that this whole thing was wrong everything that was that this was just completely wrong and handled in the wrong way so i have to tell you guys about an experience i had with a nursing student so you know i've been doing travel nursing well this hospital where i'm at has a lot of lpn students doing their clinicals there so one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope and of course Y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. If you're like me and you don't want ads interrupting your podcast flow, you can access our episodes ad-free just by becoming a patron. You can also have access to bonus material like episodes being released early, the video footage of me and my guests recording the episode, and a brand new podcast that's offered exclusively to our Patreon subscribers called Breakroom Conversations. Your support will really help us to keep the podcast running smoothly. To learn more, just head on over to our website, goodnursebadnurse.com, and click the link to become a patron. So to continue on with our story, Fire Medic Cooper administered the ketamine via syringe into the right deltoid, as you said, I am, of Mr. McLean. After approximately two to three minutes, Elijah calmed down. He was placed 
on a gurney. His handcuffs were removed and he was placed into soft restraints onto the gurney and loaded into the ambulance. Fire medic Cooper noted that after his initial examination, Mr. McLean's chest was not rising on his own and he did not have a pulse. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation and medication were administered to Elijah and he was taken by ambulance to the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment. He received advanced medical care while at the hospital. However, he died. He was de- he was actually declared brain dead on August 27th. 2019 at 3:51 p.m. on September 3rd, 2019, Dr. Stephen Cena performed a forensic autopsy on the body of Elijah McLean. On November 7th, 2019, the Adams County Coroner's Office released a report detailing the pathological findings from the autopsy. Dr. Cena declared the manner of death to be undetermined, listing several alternative possibilities that may have led to the death of Elijah McLean. In particular, Dr. Cena concluded that a combination of intense physical exertion and a narrow left coronary artery contributed to Mr. McLean's death. Mr. McLean's blood toxicology was positive for marijuana and ketamine. The pathological findings, and I'll remind you guys that marijuana is legal in uh, the state of Colorado. The pathological findings of the blood ketamine concentration was noted to be within a therapeutic level. And I wondered about this too, Roger, because when did they take this blood? You know, we know that 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 some medication, you know, and where did they take it from? You know, at, I've heard accounts of, you know, depending on where they, they take the fluid sample from the body during autopsy can depend on, you know, show the different levels of, of blood, you know, whether you're doing it from the uh, vitreous humor of the eye, or you're actually doing a blood sample from the abdomen. I mean, they can be different levels. I mean, I've heard accounts all over the place where, you know, you just get different levels of medication. So I, I don't truly know. Um, but this was several you days know, when later. When he says that it's right, that it's therapeutic. I mean, where, unless it was blood that they had in the lab. Immediately when he got to the hospital, they probably did draw blood and do the toxicology. That's fairly routine for ERs in these types of situations to look for something, uh, not illicit, but just look for medications that may be causing a problem as to why this occurred so it can be reversed or or at least addressed. You know, you, you certainly don't want to be treating somebody and they have a medication in their bloodstream that's going to be, you know, causing a problem or counteracting a medication or therapies that you're giving. So that's fairly routine. Uh, when I went back and and, and did uh, a little bit of a deep dive on ketamine, um, there there's there's not any one one of so I I I've discovered really like three things. One is that it's hard to overdose on ketamine to actually create a problem. Now I say that I'm not an expert. I will I will tell you that this is just coming straight from some of the research that's being done on ketamine and it's it's a fairly hot topic right now not only surrounding this but you know using it even in somebody's behavioral health and PTSD and all that they're they're trialing ketamine so it's being researched quite a bit it's been around for a very long time it fell out of favor from you know Vietnam era afterwards, and then now it's come back into favor. But the research out there that shows that it's very rare that it creates a problem, and that there's a 
if you surpass the therapeutic ceiling, there's not really any reports of it causing an increase in death past the therapeutic level. That's from a report that that was from one of the physicians that was just studying ketamine, not related to this particular situation. The other thing that they found was that it only rarely caused a problem with respiratory depression. And when it did, and those were retrospective studies that they looked at ketamine administration versus our old cocktail with like Haldol and, and Versed, looking at the efficacy of giving ketamine versus giving the Haldol-Benzo combination, that there was a slight increase in the amount of times that patient had to be, their, their respiratory had to be supported. But they thought that it was more related to how fast it was given versus the actual dosage. So if it was given rapidly, it would cause a short period of respiratory depression. And that's kind of what they were seeing in the research. If it was given slow, like you're supposed to give it, then it did not create respiratory problems. My mind comes, you know, and I, I know that they've had several experts and they've, they've gone back and forth with this case about ketamine and, and it being a cause, not a cause. It obviously played a role in, in them of uh, the paramedics actually being found guilty. They had an expert that said, yes, that this could. I mean, they had an emergency physician that was like, I don't see that this would have caused him to, to cause his cardiac arrest. But I can't be certain of it either. I mean, can you ever, you know, ever be certain in, you know, you're given medications? I, you know, you can't ever be a hundred percent certain. But based upon the research that is out there, it's it's weird that, you know, I can't sit here and read through this and go, okay, yes, the 500 milligrams of ketamine caused him to go into cardiac arrest. I think based upon, and this is again my opinion, this is certainly. You know, I also need to put my disclaimer out there that I do not represent my my employer when I'm saying any of this and I reference any any type of protocols and all. Please refer to your local guidelines and your protocols and your standard operating procedures. Nothing that I say, and I'm sure Tina would would support this, nothing that we say in here should be construed that you should go out and practice medicine this way. You need to be practicing based upon your local guidelines and, and protocols. With that said, you would have to look at this and go, what kind of contributing factors was there that not only was the ketamine a problem, but then was there other things that was going on that was a problem? Was the position of, of him on the ground? Was he prone? Was he, was he being, was his breathing being restricted? I don't know if you found this in any of the research. It's only been alluded to in one place that he had emetus in his airway because he had the mask. He had that, that, that mask on. And when they removed the mask, when they realized that he was no longer breathing, when they removed the mask, he had vomited into the mask and there was a lot of it in his airway. So I don't know if you if you was able to find that in any of your research, but if that was the case, did he have an airway obstruction just from that? Because at some point he stopped talking through all of this. Which they probably attributed to the ketamine. 
the ketamine. And this is where I go back to any of these positional asphyxiation deaths that we've seen pre-hospital, whether it's related to ketamine or related to being prone. When you go to do that procedure, whatever you're going to do to, to your patient, and that's probably phrased incorrectly, whatever procedures that you're going to provide for your patient, you've got to be able to follow that up. In the hospital, whenever we give a sedative, we're doing conscious sedation. I mean, we're constantly, you know, my job as a nurse during constant, uh, conscious sedation in the ER, I can't do anything else but monitor vital signs. If the physician needs something, they have to get somebody else to go get it. I can't leave that patient. My responsibility is to make sure that they are still breathing, that their vital signs are okay, and to alert the physician that, hey, you know, their respirations just dropped to six and their SATs are in 90 when they were 100. You know, we've got to start doing something. We, we you know, we've got to start providing airway support. So any of these situations, doesn't matter what the situation is, once you know, and ketamine is given IM within one to two minutes, you should see it re react with the patient. They should relax. At that point is when you need to really heighten your, your senses and go, okay, we need to put entitled CO2 on. We need to be monitoring respirations. What is their oxygen saturation in their blood? We need to start getting vital signs on this person. They need to be set at a 30 degree so that we can maintain their airway open. Um, are they to the point where we need, we need to put a nasal pharyngeal airway in? Because I've what our goal is, if you have to get to the situation where there's, and we'll talk about excited delirium, but I'm still going to stick with that term right now. You're wanting to disassociate them, and ketamine will do that at the dose that they gave them. So when you disassociate somebody with ketamine, what you're doing is putting them basically in an unconscious state that does not take the respiratory drive away, and it allows you to be able to then safely be able to provide whatever care needs to be done. And that's your whole goal is... This person is completely out of control. They're going to hurt themselves. We've got to get in control of them so that we can provide medical support. And that medical support should be right after I withdraw that needle yes, from their immediately. muscle. There should have been no way that there was a bag over his head. Nothing should have been over his head. They should be able to visualize his face, visualize his airway. And we even talked about, did they even need to do this? To begin with. And I really would like to get through their take on it because, again, we're still reading yes. from the perspective yep. of the Aurora Police Department. <laughs> I feel like it's so, you know, it's their perspective. But there's so much more, so much more to this story. And because there, I, like you said, there is a whole lot to this. And you can just go down a rabbit hole so quickly in talking about all the aspects of this. Oh, my goodness, so easily in so many ways. And I want to, and that's why I wanted to give two episodes to this, because I really do want to drive home all of these points that you're making. It's very, very important. I want to use this opportunity to hopefully prevent this from happening in the future. If, if it prevents one case of this from ever happening, it's worth talking about. So to kind of get back to our uh, this police report, they go on to say, although there's no evidence to, to support ketamine overdose, Dr. Cena could not exclude the possibility that Mr. McLean suffered from an unexpected reaction to the drug. Dr. Cena noted the carotid control hold applied during the decedent's restraint. However, he could not determine whether the carotid control hold contributed to the death as there was there were no signs 
of traumatic asphyxiation that you would expect if if the carotid control hold contributed to his death, you would expect to see some sort of injury to the muscle, some sort of injury to that side of his neck where the pressure was being applied and there was nothing like that. In addition, he noted that there were no injuries to the muscles, as I just said, of the neck, larynx, or hyoid bone that would suggest an injury to the neck causing death. The evidence also revealed that Elijah was still struggling with officers after the carotid hold was removed, leading to the conclusion that any restraint placed by police officers did not directly cause Mr. McLean's death. Specifically, Dr. Cena made these findings. The decedent was violently struggling with officers who were attempting to restrain him. Most likely, the decedent's physical exertion contributed to death. It is unclear if the officer's actions contributed as well. It is also unclear whether the decedent aspirated vomit while restrained. While on scene, the decedent displayed unusual behavior and enhanced strength. These features are commonly seen in excited delirium. And this is something that we're going to discuss. As Roger said, he's done a lot of research on this. And just again, to reiterate, this is their perspective. There's so much more that we are going to counter from their perspective. So don't think that this is in any way our opinion about about the account, about what happened whatsoever. According to this report, Elijah was not hyperthermic. In other words, he he didn't have a fever upon admission to the hospital, and there was no history of a pre-existent severe mental illness, for example, schizophrenia. There was also no history of stimulant drug use, for example, cocaine, methamphetamine, and no such drugs were detected in his blood at the time of hospital admission. Nonetheless, the patient's sudden collapse after an intense struggle is commonly seen in quote, excited delirium. It is thought that when adrenaline levels drop, potassium levels surge, resulting in an arrhythmia. And so to just explain, because there are people that listen to this that are not healthcare, an arrhythmia is basically, it's just your heart's not beating in the normal rhythm it's supposed to beat in. Um, So this mechanism may well explain his cardiac arrest, which led to anoxic encephalopathy. If his heart was beating in some weird rhythm, he's not getting enough blood to his brain. Therefore, you're not getting enough oxygen to your brain. That leads to, you know, just your your encephalopathy. Basically, you're confused. You know, you're just completely out of it. Your brain is just from lack of oxygen. You don't, you don't even know, you don't, don't know what you're saying, yeah. all sorts of things. Yeah, going wrong there. In summary, the manner of death may be accident. If it was an idiosyncratic drug reaction, it may be, in other words, in idiosyncratic is just basically an unexplained drug, drug reaction. It may be natural if the decedent had an undiagnosed mental illness that led to excited delirium. If his intense physical exertion combined with a narrow coronary artery which is something that they did find during the autopsy. The doctor found that he did have a narrowing of the main coronary artery. So if it, so basically they're saying it could be that somehow the, all the exertion contributed and in conjunction with this narrowing of the coronary, this coronary artery, if that, that could have caused it. Or he did have a history of asthma. If he had an asthma attack, if he aspirated vomit while restrained, it may be homicide, however, if the actions of 
Officers led to his death. For example, the carotid control hold led to the stimulation of carotid sinus resulting in an arrhythmia. Based on my review of the EMS reports, and this is the person who did this investigation at the Aurora Police Department. So based on this person's review of the EMS reports, hospital records, body cam footage from the restraining officers and the autopsy findings, they said, quote, I cannot determine which manner of death is most likely. Excerpt from legal analysis from the DA. Okay. We're at a point now where we've been talking about this for almost an hour. <laughs> so there, once this all, and this is all issued from the Aurora Police Department, once, you know, all of this is, is kind of out there, it's like, okay, this is what we are saying happened. We've investigated everything. And this is what happened from start to finish. And then the DA comes along and reviews all of this and then issues this analysis of the incident. There's a whole nother statement from the DA basically explaining their un, their understanding of the incident and whether or not they think that the officers should be, anyone involved should be charged and held accountable for Elijah's death. Since we've been talking about this for almost an hour, I feel like this may be a good stopping point to maybe revisit this next week. I want to lay all of this out for you guys. I feel like if you only read that initial report from from the Aurora Police Department, and that's all you had to go on was just that report. None of my none of our interjections, because we you know, I watched the body cam footage and you've done all this research and we've read all the all all this, the uh, watched interviews, read articles. So we have the privilege of having all this other information. If you didn't have all of that, and you only read their report, you would you could very possibly walk away thinking, well, it's it's unfortunate what happened. It's really tragic, but it wasn't their fault. I mean, really, it, it they the way that it's kind of spun in this in this report, you could see where you know someone might the public might look at that and go, wow, well, it does seem you know as though they just. Wow, just unfortunate accident. Yeah, there's a whole lot more to the story, a whole lot more to the story. And that's what we're going to get into for the next week. At the end of the day, like, like we've said before, it's about education. If you know better, you'll do better. What can we do to prevent the, something like this from ever happening again? And I think it's understanding all the different nuances of, of this case. And so that that you may look at your own policy and procedures and medical guidelines and go, oh, we probably need to revisit this because there are some recommendations out there. And there's some there's some pretty from from all of the the different, you know, the AMA, the ASAP, which is the emergency, uh, the College of Emergency Physicians, um, College of, uh, of EMS Physicians, which is are the physicians that take care of the pre-hospital stuff. Uh, there's all recommendations out there. At this point, there really is no reason. If you haven't revisited your your protocol on what we're calling excited delirium or agitation, it's probably time to do so based upon what's happened with, with this case. Yes, for sure. So we are going to wrap this. It's so weird for me to not go into a good nurse story, but... I want, as I said, I wanted to give as much time and attention to this story as possible. So we will see you guys next week. And of course, though, before I leave, I have to remind you, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs>